I think, as I said, we need to normalize and destigmatize eco-anxiety. We need to create safe spaces for people to say, hey, I cried when walking through the forest because I was scared about losing forests. All these things that are happening, we need to create safe spaces for people to recognize that. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Basic Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Marie. Each week, we're bringing you new stories about change, specifically stories about things changing for the better. This week, we have a story from Yellowknife, Canada, involving eco-anxiety, the melting permafrost, and something called biochar. I'm talking today with William Gagnon, an engineer specializing in climate action and decarbonization. William is also a Cornell Fellow and is LEED certified. Welcome, William. Thank you very much. Hi, Rebecca. Uh, it's very nice to be talking to you again. The last time we talked was a little over a year ago, and you were here in mm-hmm. Oslo for a conference that we um, made together, launching a book. A very nice conference. It was a great conference, and it's so nice to follow up with you again here. So let's dive right in. I want to ask you first about echo anxiety. You've been kind of an expert on this term. You're giving lectures and webinars on the subject, even now in the corona time. I see that. Um, but for those of us who aren't as familiar, what is echo anxiety? Um, so echo anxiety is defined differently for different people. Uh, it's really summarizing to these feelings we have when we read the news and we see the ever increasing uh, environmental or climatic problems. Um, and that for some people creates a lot of anxiety, for some others creates a lot of anger, uh, grief. And we're realizing that everybody kind of reacts differently. So we want to find ways to support people into transforming these emotions that are uh, that we call cues, so constructive but unpleasant emotion mm-hmm. into something that's going to be more positive. Mm-hmm. So we want to transform this eco-anxiety into uh, action, for example, because we know that, ac- that action alleviates anxiety. Yeah. Um, I haven't heard this term mm-hmm. very often before we met and you were starting to talk about it. So when did you become aware of it and when did you get interested in taking up the topic as a, as a worthwhile endeavor? <laughs> uh, so I was born in, in Montreal, Canada, which is in the province of Quebec. It's in southern Canada. And I was aware of the climate crisis. I was aware of, you know, all the different environmental problems. I was actually actively working towards solving that. I was working in green buildings. And, but then I had, I was hired to work for an organization in Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories. Uh, Yellowknife is uh, a five-hour flight west and a three-hour flight north of Montreal. So it's actually faster for people in Montreal to get to Europe than it is for them to get to Yellowknife. So it's, oh, you know, it's wow, really, really far. Okay. And um, so I moved there at not really knowing, you know, I knew I was going in and the place was really cold and, but I didn't really know a lot. But when I moved there, I realized that really what people talk about in the community is a lot about environmental changes. So, uh, and it's not your suspected allies, but it's really people at large who witness and who talk about the impacts of the climate crisis. So I've spoken with people who have had to uh, retrofit their home foundations because the permafrost is dying and their whole house is falling literally into uh, Great Slave Lake. Uh, I've spoken with the fisherman here who was telling me that uh, the thickness of the ice uh, 10 years ago was six feet, so two meters, and this year was just like a meter thick in a matter of 10 years. That's crazy. He was telling me that um, 
fish populations are changing like like he's never seen before. He's seeing like 10% of the fish he used to see, or he's seeing like way more of that other fish. Or he's seeing fish that are like, um, that have eggs when they shouldn't have eggs, you know? They're, it's completely, um, everything is kind of disrupted. I'm speaking yeah, the with biotope indigenous, is out of sync. Exactly. I'm speaking with indigenous elders who are saying like, we can't hear the birds anymore. So it creates a lot of deep, rooted problems that are, you know, you can't just tackle one problem at a time. You need to tackle the whole systemic approach. So that's how my eco-anxiety really flared up when I moved here and I realized, oh, actually, you know, the North has always been kind of the bellwether for environmental impacts. Mm-hmm. Um, the Inuit were the first one to have cataracts, for example, because of ozone layer depletion. And more UV rays were reflected on the ice and ran directly in their eyes, so they had a lot of cataracts. But really, the North is kind of the bellwether for environmental impacts. And now seeing this, I was just like, whoa, uh, it's, it's more real than I thought it was. And so what I've been trying to do is kind of bring this message to people in, in the South, let me say. Okay, so that's kind of the scene, what's being, what's, what's happening in the Yellowknife and the Northern Territories. It's not just a psychological condition. This is real. People are seeing effects of climate change that are changing their everyday life. Like you say, they have to rebuild the foundations of their homes because the ground they thought they were building on wasn't solid anymore. It, are, have, you, exactly. have you had conversations with people dealing with eco-anxiety in other climates? Yes, so I've been really fortunate to be able to connect with different communities and especially last year um, where I kind of realized that this eco-anxiety topic. So we first hosted an eco-anxiety workshop in Yellowknife, um, myself and my friend, Dr. Courtney Howard. Um, it was, you know, it was 60 people that attended in Yellowknife and 60 people is a big crowd for a small community. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we realized that there was kind of something to it. And she was doing a lot of research about this. There's a lot of you know, there's a few uh, psychologists and psychiatrists who are doing research on that, but it was really like emerging. And um, I was able to connect with uh, larger communities. I was at COP25, the big climate negotiations in Madrid in December 2019. And there I hosted an eco-anxiety workshop with Dr. Howard again. And, you know, there, there was really people from all over. Uh, I met this lady from Mexico. And then actually two months ago, I hosted another workshop with her friends. And I realized that really eco-anxiety is, yes, okay, you might have started in places where the um, impacts of the climate crisis are more deeply felt. And there is evidence to show that you're going to, you know, um, be more willing to act on the climate crisis if you see the impact. But I think now if you don't see the impact and if you are not aware of the climate crisis or its urgency, you're probably having your, your head in the sand. And, you know, denial is also a protection mechanism mm-hmm. for people for their mm-hmm. own mental health. Um, so we do, I think we need to take that with a bit of empathy. So yes, I think it's picking up uh, worldwide. Mm. And when you talk to people in different climates, I mean, you, you have kind of in the Northern Territories specifically of the melting permafrost that's kind of disrupting all kinds of things. You also have changes in the water temperature that's it's, like you say, affecting the, the fish migrations and these things. What themes are other climates focusing on or seeing in their communities? Is it also related to water or is it related to crops? Um, I think 
Well, yeah, like I think we could go on about the the local environmental impacts a bit everywhere in the world. Um, But a lot of people kind of, I think, jump directly to solutions Mm -hmm. um, because, and and I see this a lot, like people will, I'll I'll say like, uh, I'll ask the question, how does eco-anxiety feel for you in your body or in your community? And people right away will say, oh, I'm so angry that don't recycle enough, you know, or things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I think people jump quickly to the solution because they see around them that the, and I, you know, I I don't want to speak for people who don't, who live outside of of Canada, but uh, I think the wildfires um, have created a lot of anxiety. I have a lot of friends in British Columbia, which is the Western province in uh, Canada, and they were really affected by the wildfires in 2019. Uh, Yellowknife has had a big episode of forest fires in 2014, and we actually have a, a movie on that called Summer of Smoke. Uh, you can find it on Vimeo. And there, it leaves a lot of psychological scars. So d- does heat waves, you know? And we know that um, the coronavirus is actually a virus that's shown from animals to humans mm-hmm. because of a bad management of of human and natural environments. And so we know that when, you know, uh, civilization is at the frontier of a natural environment, the likelihood of this virus jumping from animals to humans is, is it goes higher. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is very much, the coronavirus is very much like a wake up call for what's gonna happen with the, the, the climate crisis. It's one of the first impacts that we're gonna see. And for me, this was not something and I was like, oh, we gotta be careful for, the emergence of new viruses, you know, I was, I was thinking more about heat waves and melting permafrost, but then, you know, out of left field, we see this coming at us. So I think, you know, maybe a lot of people don't associate the coronavirus with um, the climate crisis just yet, but I know that there's a new topic emerging of planetary health Mm -hmm. that really says that we have, there's the ecological determinants of health that are really oxygen, water, um, you know, our forests and all the natural ecosystem services mm-hmm. that nature provides us. And, and that supports the social determinants of health. So I think of it as like a cradle into a cradle. So that the ecological determinants of health are at the bottom, supporting the social determinants of health, which is really housing, economy, culture, education, employment. And within this nest of the social determinants of health, we have the healthcare system, really, mm-hmm. that is that we, you know, that is a very uh, specialized field that we can could create because we could support all of this. But if we don't support the ecological determinants of health, if we don't take care of that, then the whole thing collapses. Yeah. So we're seeing this right now with the emergency rooms that are overcrowded. Absolutely, gosh, all of it is connected. In a way, in yeah. a way that's so scary. But then, in another way, you you can say that that's actually a very good thing because if we start to fix some of the base problems, the things that are higher up are going to get fixed anyway. So we have to kind of exactly. start at the at the ground. Mm. And this thought kind of reduces my eco anxiety a lot. Yeah. Because I can say, all right, well, we, if we actually work on protecting natural ecosystems or restoring ecosystems then you're actually helping a lot of stuff down the line that we can't really, um, you know, imagine or we can't really uh, define right away, but it's showing us that, yes, we're having an impact. Mm. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about solutions then, because you mentioned that when you talk to people about their echo anxiety and what they can do, they jump to, I can imagine, they, they don't jump to solutions that are well known and kind of um, established, like you say, recycling. This is something that it's been around for a while. They know what they can do, even if we also know it doesn't have so much of an impact all the time. Um, so what good can come out of this echo anxiety and the solutions that are really making a difference? Um, the, what is really going to make a difference is when people first recognize and normalize their eco-anxiety. Mm. Uh, because if we don't do that, then I don't think we're going to get to a place where we can produce solutions. Um, and I think it's really important to recognize and normalize the um, feelings because, um, well, just like we saw with the, the you know, gay rights movement, when you're not recognized, when you're not normalized, there is no way that the community will will survive or will thrive. Absolutely. So I think the first step is really to recognize that you you have eco-anxiety, I have eco-anxiety, everybody has eco-anxiety to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Maybe some people are more in touch with it than others. Mm -hmm. So in April 2019, when I hosted this first eco-anxiety workshop in Yellowknife with Dr. Howard, it really helped me actually personally to say, to, to kind of come out as like, I have eco-anxiety and uh, what to do with it. And then a couple months later, maybe two months later, um, well, the, the, the conference in Oslo came around and I was feeling quite low in terms of my energy and I felt like I needed to like replenish my bucket. Mm -hmm. So I decided to actually take six weeks off and I, you know, I was of course in a position of privilege where I could do that. And yeah. so it started, uh, in Oslo, you know, what a great start to a trip. So I took uh, six weeks in the Nordics and I took it really not as a vacation, but more like as a personal research trip. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, I went to Finland. I went to Norway, Sweden, Denmark. Uh, I ended up going to Austria and Germany for, for a little while. And my full-time job uh, weekdays and weekends was to look for climate solutions. So I was basically spending a lot of time on LinkedIn, Google, and trying to connect with people who do cool stuff uh -huh. that I thought was exciting. And this, this honestly was like the most exciting trip because it was a bit work related. It was mostly driven by my personal interests, but I was learning a lot. And in Finland, for example, uh, I, I, I went to Tampere and I met with guys who started this carbon negative district energy system. So I know you guys in, in the Nordics have a lot of district energy systems, but what's cool about what they're doing in Tampere is that instead of just burning biomass and releasing the carbon in the atmosphere as CO2, mm -hmm. they actually pyrolyze the biomass, which means in a nutshell, if we really simplify it, is instead of releasing any carbon in the, in the air, they transform the carbon in biochar. And so what is biochar? Yeah. Biochar is a soil amendment, and when you spread the soil amendment in the fields, in the soils, in the forest, whatever, wherever, it, it's actually pure carbon. So you're actually replenishing the base, right? The like mm -hmm. the ecological determinants of health. So we're actually replenishing forests, and, and so we're we're storing more carbon into the soils. We're improving the the production capacity of the soils, mm -hmm. and so they're doing this in Finland. Uh, they're producing heat. Um, they're sequestering carbon. They're also, they're increasing their revenue because they can claim carbon credits. Mm -hmm. 
-huh. for the carbon that they sequester. Um, and so the, um, the neighborhood of Yidranta in Tampere is actually the first carbon negative neighborhood in the world. Wow. And I know, it's crazy. The city of Stockholm also did this. Uh, they have a biochar project. It seems like it's up and running, not all the time. They, they're having a bunch of problems. Like it's a, it's a new technology, it's an innovation. So of course there's gonna be some failures, but yeah, um, and on a, on a big city cool. scale, there can be a lot that goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but actually they're increasing. I, I think this year or maybe next year, they're uh, building a new plant that's gonna be like much bigger uh, in order also to produce carbon negative emissions. So um, it's gonna help the city of Stockholm reach carbon neutrality way faster. So uh, seeing all these solutions really um, kind of charged my bucket. And then I went back to Canada and I was like, well, I need to share these ideas. So I shared a lot of these stories at different conferences back in Canada. And people are like, oh, well, I didn't even know it existed, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think we need to do a lot of work at actually providing, saying to people, hey, there's a big problem, but there's also cool solutions over here. We need to look at what the Nordics are doing and bring this knowledge to uh, Canada. Exactly. That's so important. That's why that's why I want to do this podcast is because there's so many yeah. things out there that are making a difference, but maybe the stories just aren't being told yet. Exactly. Yes. And another thing I learned in the Nordics is circular economy. Yes. Um, I was a bit aware of it, but you guys are just like, like literally at least 10 years ahead of us in terms of circular economy, like governments are starting to talk about that. But mm -hmm. in, uh, I don't know about Norway, but in Sweden, like there is government funds for communities to switch to circular economy. So it's just like, wow, like, yeah. it's really, it's really a, a thing. And uh, I was at the circular, uh, at the World Circular Economy Forum in Helsinki, uh, just a few days after this also conference. And I realized that Canada was there because we were supposed to host in Toronto this year, um, of course, that didn't happen and got pushed back to 2021. Uh, but I realized that, you know, the Nordics have their, their stuff together. You know, if you look at uh, Nordic innovation, this is a kind of like a multi-country innovation funding pot that I think yeah. is a very cool idea. Yeah. Um, they have a lot of solutions, but the government of Canada was there just like, hey, we're kind of just taking notes here, and <laughs> which is great to see, but we also have a lot of work to do. Yeah. No, but you mentioned politics also a bit when you were talking about these guys in Finland doing the biochar, that they're getting um, credits, um, so yeah. basically money to do this from the government. Um, I am curious. I mean, we, we do have programs, like you say, here in the Nordic countries to encourage um, green innovation. Is anything like that starting to happen in Canada? Are the, there's going to be some elections coming up, as I understand. Is, are the candidates putting these uh, ideas into platforms yeah so for uh, the the guys in in finland they are actually on a voluntary carbon market so mm. um they're it's i think it's just more lucrative for them to go on the voluntary carbon market um and these carbon credits basically got get bought by somebody else uh, in the world to offset their own carbon emissions um, I see. Mm -hmm. but um so that's a very interesting question because this is something I talk a lot about. So if you look at the countries in the world, Sweden is really, um, I think Swedes were like second in the world to adopt the price on carbon. Finland was the first country in 1991, Sweden in 1992, something like that. And currently 
Swedes have a price on carbon, I think, is around $170 Canadian per ton, mm. uh, which is the highest price on carbon you can find uh, in the world. I think Norway is something around 60 euros and Denmark 40 euros. I'm getting the conversions wrong. But Canada is really, really far behind. We're like at 12 euros per metric ton of carbon. But the liberal government that got in, so Justin Trudeau that got elected in 2015, uh, put a price on carbon that was going to increase by $10 per ton until 2023 in order to reach $50 per ton in 2023. But um, it's, it's facing a lot of opposition. We have a very complicated you know, electoral system. We're still following the first past the post, which is the same as the U.S., yeah. and it creates a lot of division and inequalities. Uh, there is a lot of push for uh, stronger price on carbon. I believe that if the Liberals get elected again in the next election, which should be in 2021, uh, we're going to see a much stronger price on carbon. We have to keep in mind that the International Energy Agency says that in order to see any kind of meaningful reduction in carbon emissions, we will need to have a price on carbon that's at least 150 US dollars per metric ton of carbon. So really, there's only Sweden who's there. But mm -hmm. look at what Sweden is doing. Like where uh, Skype is Swedish, Spotify is Swedish, oat milk is Swedish. Look at all these innovations that started in the 1990s uh, at the same time as when Sweden was putting more regulations on carbon. So, And we're seeing that the Swedes are like, you know, in terms of innovation per capita, they're doing pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, And I, sorry, I, I have a lot of Swedish references. I know that the Norwegians fine. are great people again. <laughs> well, you know, uh, no, I, I think just... it's fine. You use the references you have. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, guess I would just hate if people reference the Canadians as, as American. So I just want to keep that in mind. But Yeah, yeah um... no problem. <laughs> <laughs> We're just talking about positive change in the world. So it uh, mm -hmm. doesn't matter where it comes from. Yes, yes. I, I think... In the Nordic countries, there's a good balance on carrots and sticks, if you know what I mean. So the yes. tax. Well, I have, I have a Norwegian uh, example that I learned in the train from also to Lillestrøm. Yeah. Uh, so I, I remember seeing an ad for some sort of, of car. To me, it looked like a luxury car. Um, and it was priced I, something around $200,000 Canadian, I can remember. Yeah. Um, and I was like, wow, this is just crazy. You know, it's like this kind of car would sell for a fourth of this price in, in mm -hmm. Canada, because I know that the taxes on vehicles in Norway are like very, very high. And then I also, I was Googling in these days, I also learned that on electric vehicles, there's basically no taxes or like very little taxes. So this is a great example of how Norway is saying, hey, you can buy a like fancy Volvo for 200,000. Or you can buy a Tesla for a hundred thousand. Yeah, and exactly. In Canada, in Canada, you're gonna buy the, the Volvo for way more, uh, for way less money than for the Tesla. But mm -hmm. we're, you know, you guys are taxing properly. So kudos to Norway. <laughs> yeah, that is that is a very good example. So basically, the Tesla becomes 25% cheaper just because there's no tax on it. They've also well, that's um, significant. Yeah, it is significant, and it's also the way that they're um, planning the traffic and the the streets here. So there's now a lane that's for buses and taxis, but electrical vehicles get to drive there as well. And those are kind of the express lanes. 
so they, it's also a prioritization of our infrastructure. So there's, there's quite a lot of carrots built into the, to making positive changes here, I think. So uh, yeah. yeah, that's a really good example. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I really like at this conference that, uh, that you and I, that you organized and where uh, I attended this, I can't remember her name, but this lady was uh, explaining how she's managing the hydrography of the city of Oslo. Yeah. And I was like, wow, they're putting so much care in, in stuff that we would probably overlook. Um, so I think it just speaks to really taking care of, you know, the, really the basis of the city, like where the weathers go uh, and stuff. So I think that's very interesting. Yeah, it is. I want to touch on one last thing before we wrap up, and that is um, you've mentioned Dr. Courtney Howard a couple of times today, and I know that you've been working with her on something. So do you have anything <laughs> you would like to share? <laughs> yes. So yeah. Dr. Howard is a friend. She is an eMERGE doc, and she, she works in the emergency room here in Yellowknife, and she basically spends half of her time in the ER, and half of her time she works on climate stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, for her, really, climate was not a priority. So 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, she was working with Médecins Sans Frontières in Djibouti, and her goal was really to, like, make a lot of people feel better, save a lot of people. So she was working in, in Djibouti, uh, you know, uh, helping with severely malnourished uh, children. And then um, she moved to the north and she learned that actually the Lancet magazine, which is the most respected medical publication in the world, said that climate change was basically the biggest health threat of the 21st century. And okay. for her, I think that was a, a moment, at least how I understand it, that really she like, oh, she kind of shifted her efforts. She said, if you want to save a lot of people, you should work on climate, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, because a lot of people will be affected. And we're seeing this with the coronavirus crisis because a lot of people will be affected by that. Mm -hmm. And so she started doing a lot of advocacy um, on, on things that are, uh, a little bit away from medicine, but she can explain them in, in such like, she can explain the impact that this has on, on, on medicine. So for example, she was the first doctor in Canada to advocate for carbon pricing or one of the first. And she uh, quickly um, jumped on the board of the Canadian Medical Association and jumped on the board of Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment. And she basically advocated for the Canadian Medical Association to first divest and then to take a strong stance in favor of carbon pricing. And they mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. And when you look at who are the most trusted messengers, so if a lawyer tells you something or if a businessman tells you something, you're way less likely to listen than yeah. if a nurse or a doctor tells you something. Yeah. And we're seeing this, you know, uh, all around the world. So she's really trying to create a movement of doctors running for office. So what she says is that we're seeing that politics is a determinant of health. Yes. And that's true, especially with the coronavirus crisis. If you look at Yacinda Ardern, if you look at Angela Merkel, if you look at all the countries with female prime minister who actually listen Yes. to their top doctors and scientists, where are they right now in the coronavirus crisis? Versus if you look at countries that reluctantly, you know, that did not listen to their top doctors and scientists, if you look at the UK, uh, if you look at the US, 
Like, yeah. it's so clear to me, and that was not clear to me a month ago. It's so clear to me now that politics is a determinant of health. Mm, and we're, we're we, you know, we now have to recognize that. And, you know, it's now evidence-based that basically politics is a determinant of health. So yes. um, anyways, so she is um, running to become the leader of the Green Party of Canada. And I was bugging her about that a year ago. I was like, Courtney, you should run for leader of the Greens. And she's like, no, I'm too busy. You know, she is very busy. Two kids, a husband, you know, this is just like always on the go. Yeah. And, and then we were together at COP. We gave a, a workshop on eco-anxiety together at COP. And when she came back, I was like, Courtney, you should really th- think about running for leader of the Greens. And then at some time in February, she called me out of the blue and she's like, well, last night I was at a concert and I started crying and I realized, oh my God, I need to run for leader of the Greens. And then I was like, I know, I told you. <laughs> so she came around um, so, finally. Yeah. <laughs> so since then, I've, I mean, I've been helping her a lot. Um, I'm, I'm managing her campaign um, and uh, we're going to have an election for the leadership of the Green Party in October. And so how it works in Canada is that there's really two main parties, the Liberals and the Conservatives. And the, um, there's the New Democrats and there's the Greens. But Liberals and Conservatives have, for 150 years, basically just exchanged the power. Okay. We're trying to break this. Mm-hmm. And it's been really difficult for smaller parties like the New Democrats or the Greens to kind of break into something bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think having a health voice as the leader of a party will really, really change how we do politics. So yeah, hopefully um, change the conversation. To, yeah, I'm yeah. excited to uh, tell you more about that a bit later. Yeah, good. I would like to keep checking in and, and see how things are going, both on the echo anxiety, the melting permafrost and these solutions, but also on this, um, this link that maybe is not so evident when you just hear it, the link between politics, health, and climate, which if we can get those three moving in the same direction, then I think things are going to get better. Yeah, actually, well, it's, it's a difficult link to draw because we're told that we can't do politics. You know, sometimes politics is really something we push aside. We say, oh, we don't want to get involved in this because we, we're, we're focusing on science. Or, um, so, or yeah, but nobody, nobody it, wants to politicize health. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but we we need to to be careful of that. And uh, Courtney explains it really well. She has a TED talk. So if you Google "Healthy Planet, Healthy People" by Dr. Courtney Howard, um, you'll see she you know in like 15 minutes she basically explains how this all works in her head, and it's just worth the watch. That's fantastic. I'll, I'm going to link to that then in the show notes. Um, awesome. Also, the link to your video um, about the forest fires. What was it called again? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, Summer of Smoke by Just Ecology Most in yeah. 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll send you the link and you'll put that on your page. Exactly. Wow. Um, okay. This started out with some very challenging topics. We've heard about some <laughs> solutions and um, I would just like to say thank you very much for talking with uh, BASAC and for sharing the story. And I would really like to check in with you as you go forward and hear how the updates are coming. Absolutely. And in closing, I'd love to say that, you know, like stuff like BASAC is really, I think, what changes people's, um, you know, perceptions. I think, as I said, we need to normalize and destigmatize eco-anxiety 
-hmm. We need to create safe spaces for people to say, hey, I cried when walking through the forest because I was scared about losing forest or I have a hard time breathing or a hard time sleeping because I am scared about, you know, all these things that are happening. We need to create safe spaces for people to recognize that so that they have the mental energy and they have this, you know, the space in their bucket of energy to kind of go towards these solutions and create the stuff like creating a podcast or working on solutions. Yeah. So no, thank you, Rebecca, for your work. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. BASAC is inspired by the stories of our past and committed to creating new stories that will inspire future generations. There are a lot of really smart people out there doing really smart things that have the potential to make our world a much better place. BASAC features those stories through various works of media that are compelling, unique, and useful. If you have a story you'd like to share, please get in touch. My email is rebecca at basac.com. That's R-E-B-E-K-A-H at B-A-A-S-A-C dot com. Thank you again, and we will talk later. Tusen tack, Rebecca. Bye, Higley. Thank <laughs> you.